the A-Team. Won't be seen tonight, so we can bring you a very special episode of The Gen X-Files. Welcome to The Gen X-Files. I'm Jim. I'm Adam. And today's show is all about Total Recall. Yeah, man. Ho, ho, ho. <laughs> Going to Mars, baby. Yeah. Get your ass to Mars. I'm getting to Mars. Uh, they, the, it does one of my favorite things ever in movies where they actually say the title during the movie. Yeah. It's awesome. He's going to get Total Recall. What? <laughs> bum, bum, bum. <laughs> Take yourself back to 1990. Yeah. February 14th, the pale blue dot photograph of Earth is sent back from the Voyager 1 probe after completing its primary mission from around three and a half billion miles away. Feature. I am feature. <laughs> that is feature. We must stop it from this boring movie. The most boring movie ever made. Yeah. Feature. Self-destruct. That's, that's the first one? Yeah. Yeah, I've never seen it. I've... They're doing, I think they're doing like a re- cut Another thing? One? Oh, like, Not a a di- like, like a they're... director's cut kind of thing? Yeah, but they're doing like what they... Like fixing the effects and doing stuff to make <laughs> it not, not so, so awful. Boring. God, it was so boring, man. Like it should have been called Star Trek. Worse than watching paint dry. <laughs> I. It's the only franchise where I've literally. This is the only one I've not seen. Well, you're not missing it. Yeah. February twenty eighth, Greville Wynn, famed British businessman who turned into a spy and courted a Russian GRU agent and was caught during World War II before being traded for another Soviet spy, dies from throat cancer. Aw. Hey, do you think? Um, the character grew, got his name from GRU. I think it's a reference, yeah. I thought so, too. Yeah, yeah. I'm pretty clever. You are. <laughs> You're like Sherlock Holmes, man. Yeah. April 24th, the Hubble Space Telescope is launched aboard Space Shuttle Discovery. By December, it will be sending back high-res photos of Mars. I see what you did there. Yeah. <laughs> June 1st, Total Recall is released in theaters. <laughs> That's forty percent of his dialogue. I would say half. Oh, wow, you're being generous. <laughs> I'm being generous. You're being generous. Yeah, it totally is. <laughs> I want to do a drinking game with this movie where every time he grunts, you have to take a shot, and you have to make the sound, and you will die. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, so, Total Recall starts from famed author Philip K. Dick. He had his twenty-three page short story "We Can Remember It for You" wholesale published in the April nineteen sixty-six edition of the magazine of fantasy and science fiction. Dick's story depicts a meek clerk on Earth named Quail who visits Recall Incorporated to receive a memory implant of being a secret agent on Mars. However, the process uncovers his true identity as a secret agent who previously visited Mars and whose death will bring about an alien invasion. Cool. And you know, we were talking about, like, Quail, the name. But I think for a meek clerk, I think Quail's a good name because it gives him kind of a a weakness, you know. But you can't call big ol' Arnie Quail. No, no. Plus... I think it was because of the vice president. Uh, that was part of it, I, but it definitely during rewrites. It definitely I can got spill changed. the title. Yeah, yeah. It was. Well, I mean, kind of. I guess because he came in '88. Uh, anyway, I Quail just wasn't a strong name. I mean, at the end of the day, uh, Dick wrote 44 novels and about 121 short stories over his career, most of which appeared in science fiction magazines during his lifetime. He had found little commercial success until his alternative history novel, The Man in the High Castle, published in 1962, earned him acclaim, including a Hugo Award for Best Novel when he was 33. Nice. Did you ever watch the show? Uh, I started to. I saw the first season, about half of the second season, and I haven't finished it. It, it, it obviously goes much further than the novel does. Sure. Uh, it looks interesting. I just It's good. It's one of those things that kind of got lost. Yeah. It's good, though. It's really good. Over a dozen of Dick's stories have been adapted into feature films since Blade Runner was released in 1982. The development of Total Recall began in 1974 when producer Ronald Shusett purchased the adaptation rights to We Can Remember For You Wholesale for $1,000. Nice. Way to go, Shusit. (laughs) Shusit had found some success with creating the story for the film W, also titled I Want Her Dead and W is the Mark of Death, in 1974 starring Twiggy. Nice. She was a big model. She was. She is not her fault, but a lot of people credit her with the waif look and women's... uh, that, yeah. Unrealistic 
body image issues. Expectations, yeah. Uh, she was just a skinny girl. She was. It wasn't she her was. fault, but yeah. She just got very started popular. the whole thing, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, renaming it Total Recall, Shusett worked with Dan O'Bannon to write the script. O'Bannon had found some success with the feature film Dark Star in 1974. Dark Star was John Carpenter's feature directorial debut. Yeah. Yeah. O'Bannon, who also served as editor, production designer, and visual effects supervisor on Dark Star, also appeared in the movie as Sergeant Pinback. Of course he did. Yeah. Well, because that's the way everybody was in the movie. <laughs> I, mean, I don't think I saw that one. No, it's, uh, I think it's on Amazon Prime. I looked it up, and it's, it is available somewhere. I should watch it. Yeah, I have, I've never seen it either. Uh, O'Bannon exhausted the existing short story material from We Can Remember It For You Wholesale rather quickly, and the short story's abrupt ending meant that he could only write 30 pages, effectively only the first act, and an original second and third act were needed for the movie. It was then that O'Bannon suggested sending Quaid to Mars. Shusit and O'Bannon disagreed over the third act, the former wanting something more dramatic. More dramatic than going to Mars? Yeah. O'Bannon's ending revealed the handprint on the alien machine as Quaid's, who is a replica of the original, and placing his hand on it grants him total memory recall. Total recall! Uh, O'Bannon described the filmed ending from 1990 as lame. That's lame, man. That's totally lame. Which I don't, I don't really understand. It's a great ending. I, but, the real know, ending or this ending? The real ending. Oh, well, he's not... This isn't the he No, this is what replica. he wanted, right. and he didn't like the way it turned out. Oh, that it was like because an he alien... was not the last writer to work on yeah, this. <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> no, I mean it took 16 years to get produced. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, Dick read the script prior to his death in 1982, and according to O'Bannon, very enjoyed it. Very enjoyed it. That very enjoyed it. Yeah. Although studios deemed Shusit and O'Bannon's script an ambitious and brilliant idea, it was essentially considered unfilmable in part because of the extensive special effects and high budget that would be required. And Stusit or Shusit. <laughs> Demanded that they shoot on location in Mars. Yeah. And they're like, well, we haven't even been there yet. And he's like, I demand it. Well, you're going to get me there. I'm like, this is going to cost billions of dollars. It'll be worth it. Get my ass to Mars. We're going to get Jimmy Kahn. He's going to be in it. It'll be worth it. Shusen and O'Bannon moved on to collaborating on the script for the science fiction horror film Alien, the success of which earned Shusen a development deal at Walt Disney Studios. Uh, he pursued the Total Recall project at the studio, initially budgeted at $20 million, but the idea did not progress because issues with the third act could not be resolved. A damn third act. Yeah. The project was sold to Dino De Laurentiis' De Laurentiis Entertainment Group in 1982. De Laurentiis considered a number of directors for the film. Richard Rush, who received a nomination for the Academy Award for Best Director for his film The Stuntman in 1980. That was a great movie. I don't think I've ever seen it. Is that Peter O'Toole? I think so. Don't quote me on that. Uh, he also directed Freebie and the Bean. Yeah, Freebie and the Bean. buddy comedy drama starring Alan, Alan Arkin and Jimmy Kahn in 1974. Freebie and the Bean. <laughs> I had to mention Freebie and the Bean, which I still have not seen, and I really need to see. You're lost, baby. I know. Louis Teague was considered. He directed Cujo in 1983 and The Jewel of the Nile in 1985. Russell Mulca- Mulcahy, who directed Highlander in 1986. Your favorite movie. <sighs> And Fred Skepsi, who directed Iceman in 1984 and Roxanne in 1987. I like to call him Fred Shepepsi. Shepepsi? That's not how it's pronounced That's at all. That's how I pronounce it. De Laurentiis eventually chose David Cronenberg in 1984. Uh, we came real close to having a David Cronenberg total recall. Uh, it would be so fleshy and gross. <laughs> it's already pretty fleshy Yeah, and but it would have been so much more fleshy. And everything uh, would look like kind of like a butthole. But it makes sense because a lot of that stuff came from Cronenberg's scripts. He had just come off releasing two films in 1983, Videodrome and The Dead Zone, the latter of which scored very well at the box office. Yeah, it's you forget that he did The Dead Zone. It's such a good movie. Yeah, and it's got it doesn't have any fleshy gross things. No. Although, oh, there's some gross stuff. The guy the the suicide in it the cop With killer the, the killer killing himself is one of the most horrifying things I've ever seen yeah yeah it's gross. it's done so well uh, but I totally forget that he directed that yeah. Cronenberg was unfamiliar with Dick's work, but was interested in the script. Problems remained with the third act, and Cronenberg spent the next year writing 12 separate drafts. In his finished script, Quaid's true identity is Chairman Mandrell, the dictator of Earth, who, following a failed assassination attempt on his life, is convinced by Mars Administrator Cohagen to confront the organization that suppressed his memory. Huh? Yeah, it's confusing. Cohagen later reveals that Quaid is an inconsequential government worker chosen to play the role of Mandrill to facilitate Cohagen usurping control of the Earth. 
Quaid defeats Cohagen and assumes the identity of Mandrill, and everybody's happy, I guess. Okay. <laughs> Cronenberg was responsible for the mutant characters, including Kuato. Kuato. And further developed an idea by Shusit about mutant animals known as Gansibles in the Martian sewers, but he turned them into camels. My name is Quato, <laughs> and I like to get Plato. <laughs> Uh, Camels, I would have liked to see those It really, when you see the final product in 1990, it's really obvious that Cronenberg had a heavy hand in creating that stuff because they're so slimy and gross. But it's like Cronenberg light. It's not quite as, it's like, yeah, they they didn't quite go full Cronenberg. No, no. Cronenberg found himself at odds with Shusit regarding the tone as Shusit and De Laurentiis did not want it to be as serious as the science fiction film Blade Runner, which was released in 82, an adaptation of Philip K. Dick novel, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, uh, which was a fantastic movie. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, One of my favorite movies of all time. Do you prefer the original theatrical cut or the director's cut? I was a Blade Runner. That's a guy that goes after (laughs) robots. It was a tough day. In Los Angeles, rainy and gross. I hated... No. I, I mean, I loved the original <laughs> when it came out because I loved yeah, the movie. Yeah, But, no. Once, once you saw it without the awful VO. <laughs> yeah. It was... I mean, it wasn't awful. It, it just, just didn't, was superfluous. Yeah, it was yeah. just... Basically, they tried to idiot-proof the movie, and that yeah. it didn't help. I well, think the final, final, final director's ultimate cut or whatever... Right, kind right. Of, that's the one. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. For sure. Know. Uh, Schusset described Cronenberg's work as bringing the film back to Dick's original short story, whereas they wanted an adventure closer to... Raiders of the Lost Ark go to Mars. Yeah, every good executive just shoehorn an idea into a pre-existing idea. Hey, that's how you sell stuff. Cronenberg did not want to make that film and chose to quit. Yeah. Yeah, I think a lot of, you know, because he didn't really do anything mainstream after this, I don't think. Not really. You know, I mean, it was mostly his... Weird little movies he that did, are awesome. He did stuff that he wanted. Yeah, I exactly. Mean, sure. I, I think he got out of the Hollywood factory machine and just kind well, of cause did. It, but, but after this, he did The Fly. Right, but I think I would even say was, The Fly wasn't uh, like a Hollywood. I, I mean, I it was know. a horror movie, but it wasn't like yeah. a mainstream. It was pretty gross. Uh, well, yeah, but I'm just I'm just saying in, in regards to being independently produced or being backed sure. by a studio. I think it was his, you know, his slow walk away from Hollywood. I, I think it was one of those – the executives knew when, he, when they signed him up that they were going to have to do things his way. And it, that was, it was kind of like, look, I can walk away from this. Sure. Like, it's fine. So He was also frustrated by the casting of Richard Dreyfus in the lead role. What? Hold on a second. Everybody loves Richard Dreyfus. It was going to be great as Quaid. I cannot imagine someone more opposite than Arnold Schwarzenegger no. No. <laughs> in this role. Oh. Hey, Quato. Look at you, uh, Dreyfus had requested further rewrites to have Quaid reflect the everyman persona he had established in his previous films rather than the action focus of the Shusit O'Bannon story. Yeah, that's what everybody wants to see. <laughs> Some regular schlub. If, if they did a short based off the original story, Dreyfus would be perfect. Sure. That is not the movie they were making. No. No. Cronenberg uh, had wanted to cast William Hurt as the lead instead and focus more on the concepts of memory and identity. It would have been interesting. Yeah. It would have been like altered states. Well, that's – and eventually he would explore these same concepts in Existence in 1999, uh, which is one of my favorite movies. Yeah, it's great. Uh, Christopher Reeve and Jeff Bridges were also considered for Quaid during this time. Yeah, Jeff uh, Bridges. <laughs> was it what it- <laughs> they both, I mean, they'd be great. Better, I mean, better choice than Richard Dreyfus. But uh, hey, we we'll need to be nasty. I love Richard Dreyfus. There's just certain things he should not do. Yeah, this was one of them. Like cocaine. Uh, well, yes. De Laurentiis had wanted to reduce the budget by eliminating Mars entirely, but Shusit and O'Bannon dissented. De Laurentiis threatened to sue Cronenberg for quitting, but was placated by Cronenberg agreeing to work with him on a different film at a later date. A few years later, De Laurentiis actually offered Cronenberg the opportunity to make Total Recall as he wanted to, but Cronenberg was not interested anymore and just did not want to argue with Shusit again. Sure. Apparently there was a lot of very bad blood between the two. Problems with finalizing the script and the high budget continued to stall Total Recall for the next few years. In 1987, De Laurentiis again considered hiring Richard Rush as director, but De Laurentiis disliked the finale featuring a breathable atmosphere on Mars while Rush supported the idea. <laughs> 
Uh, <laughs> De Laurentiis accepted he was wrong after hiring director Bruce Bearsford, who also supported the ending. Bearsford had just come off directing Crimes of the Heart in 1986 for De Laurentiis. The film starred Diane Keaton, Jessica Lange, Sissy Spacek, and Sam Shepard. It was nominated for three Academy Awards. Yeah, it was a nice little film. I want to say I've seen it. I don't remember. Around this time, writer Gary Goldman was offered an opportunity to refine the script, but he turned it down to focus on his own project called Warrior that he was working on alongside director Paul Verhoeven at Warner Brothers Pictures. Uh, You remember Goldman wrote Big Trouble in Little China in 1986. Did Warrior ever come out? No. I don't believe so. I don't believe it ever happened. Bad choice, then. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Beresford began preparations for a version of Total Recall described by Shusett as less gritty and more Spielbergian in tone, and Patrick Swayze was cast as Quaid. Yeah! Pain don't hurt! This is, a, yeah, it's around that time when he was starting to become an action star. Yeah. <laughs> Pain don't hurt, unless you're not breathing on the surface of Mars. <laughs> yeah, I would have liked to see his bug-eyed. There you go. <laughs> Set construction was underway in Australia when the De, La- De Laurentiis Entertainment Group filed for bankruptcy in 1988. Approximately 80 crew were fired and the sets had to be destroyed. By this point, the project had already accrued $8 million in pre-production costs and $6 million in turnaround costs, a process allowing other studios to purchase the idea. Yeah. I can't imagine spending $14 million on something and literally having nothing. You write it off. Yeah, well, I'm sure. Losses, baby. I'm guessing this is probably part of the reason why the De Laurentiis group went bankrupt. <laughs> well, they had a lot of – you don't remember. The De Laurentiis they did a lot. I know. Everything. Yeah. They were very yeah. spread very thin. Yeah, yeah. Arnold Schwarzenegger became aware of Total Recall in the mid-1980s, either during filming of Commando in 1985 or Raw Deal in 1986. I am very aware of Total Recall. <laughs> yes. That's what he said to uh, um, to – Governor Jesse Ventura. Oh yeah, when he was on when he was on the the Predator Predator. Yeah, he liked the script and agreed to pursue it alongside producer Joel Silver while filming Predator in '87. But the project remained unrealized due to its prohibitive budget and because De Laurentiis did not think Schwarzenegger was right for the lead role. I just don't think he's right. <laughs> Following DEG's bankruptcy, Schwarzenegger convinced Andrew Vajna and Mario Casar, co-owners of the independent film studio Carol Co. Pictures, with whom he had made Red Heat in 1988, to purchase the rights for $3 million, including pre-production costs. Schwarzenegger wanted to star in the film, pending rewrites to his satisfaction, and his fame and international appeal justified the studio investing the necessary budget. You know why I love Arnold? Because I think he, more than anyone else ever, loves being a movie star. Oh, yeah. And yeah. that... It's in fact like The Rock is seems everything is calculated yeah. to maximize yeah. his star power. It just doesn't. It seems kind of phony to me. It just seems manufactured. Uh, sure, you sure. know. I mean, I'm sure he's a nice guy and he's super popular do, and all that stuff. I, yeah, but it the, he just with his cigar, he just seems like he, he just revels in it. Yeah, and his joy of being a movie star. Makes him so lovable. It's oh, not yeah, like a I narcissistic agree. thing. No, no. It's just that it's like and enjoying the fame. You know, so few people get to that level right, of right. stardom, and so many people are just like, I hate it. You know, it's just it's a burden on my life, and I hate it. But he just leaned in yeah. and was like, oh, "This is the greatest thing ever. This country is the greatest country in the world. Look at me, you know." And yeah. he was like the immigrant story for the longest time. Oh, yeah. You know, came yeah. with nothing and created. Uh, you know, so I mean, say what you will about Arnie. I, yeah. You got to respect him for just being so good at being oh, a movie star. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is a man that was willing, granted, I mean, he was getting older, but he was willing to walk away to play politics. Like, yeah. I mean, it, and, and he went whole hog into that, too. Like, yeah. He's a fascinating individual. Yeah, well, anything that he's ever done, he's been successful at. Yes. And yes. not because of luck or anything, but mostly because of his work ethic. Yeah. You, know, oh, yeah. you can't oh, yeah. be a bodybuilder like that yeah. and be a lazy boat. No, you know? no, you cannot. You can't. I mean, he started uh, right after the earthquake. He started like a brick business. Oh, really? Here and made yeah. a ton of money. I mean, he was yeah. an opportunist who sure. made his money and then was always looking ahead to the next thing. Yeah. yeah. And... He, that's why he's just such a successful guy. Such a fascinating guy. He is. He you is know, he's really got his foibles like all of us. Sure. But he's, he's human. also, yeah. you know, he's just a big, 
glug who just <laughs> likes attention and likes being a movie star. He's, he is enjoying life. Exactly. Sure. He yeah. seems to really enjoy Hollywood. And yeah, it's, it's yeah. rare to see somebody enjoy it that much. He, yeah, it's funny because he does, he gets that like, yeah, there's bad things, but he's just kind of like, yeah, it's fine. The, the positive outweighs the bad. Let's, sure. let's, let's focus on the positive. Uh, Carol Co. completed its acquisition of the majority of DEG's business and assets in April of 1989. Schwarzenegger was given substantial influence over the project. He retained Schusset as a screenwriter and co-producer alongside producer Buzz Feitschans and oversaw script revisions, casting decisions, and set construction. Ooh, Schusset and Feitschans. <laughs> Sounds like uh, Dragon Ball Z characters or something. <laughs> Uh, Schwarzenegger described himself as effectively an executive producer without the responsibility, but he involved himself heavily because he wanted the project to work. I want this project to work. Uh, he received a ten to eleven million dollar salary plus fifteen percent of the film's profits. Yeah, jeepers creeps, man. That is a lot. <laughs> Schwarzenegger hired Verhoeven as the director after being impressed by his science fiction film RoboCop in nineteen eighty seven, for which Schwarzenegger had been considered in the lead role. Stop. I'm a RoboCop. I didn't know this, and it surprised me, <laughs> because it would be a very different movie. Yes, it would. Ah, I'm a RoboCop. I do not need a gun. <laughs> I'm just going to punch you. <laughs> uh, yeah, give me my mush. I want to eat my mush now. <laughs> Verhoeven had previously been courted by Shusett to direct the film based on his work on Soldier of Orange from 1977, but declined then because he did not like science fiction. Ironically. Okay. <laughs> Apparently changed his mind 10 years later. Yeah. Uh, even so, Verhoeven accepted Schwarzenegger's offer, uh, offer after reading the Mars Hotel scene where Dr. Edgemar attempts to convince Quaid he is still on Earth. It was his favorite scene and convinced him to do it. It's a great scene. Oh, yeah. Verhoeven had wanted to avoid special effects heavy films after Robocop and said that he did not realize how much effects work would be involved. Did you read the script, buddy? Your half of the movie is on Mars. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Verhoeven requested Goldman be brought in to help with rewrites, as well as some core personnel from Robocop, including cinematographer Yost Vacano, production designer William Sandell, and special effects artist Rob Botton. By this point, approximately 30 drafts had been completed, credited to a combination of Shusett and either O'Bannon, John Pavel, or Stephen Pressfield, among others. It's just got to lose all meaning at some point. Oh, that's just it. I, I don't know. I mean, 30 drafts is just, it's like processed food, baby. Yeah. Well, yeah. Verhoeven read each draft and highlighted parts of those he wanted Goldman to use. Goldman had little knowledge of Dick's work, but tried to respect the source material and work of previous screenwriters. He considered the second half of the film a concession to traditional Hollywood narratives and so retained most of the structure from Beresford's shooting script. Okay. Because the creative team wanted to commence soon, Goldman believed he did not have the freedom to make substantial changes to the script and focused on refining the existing content and making the scientific aspects more realistic. Yeah. Uh, Verhoeven and Schwarzenegger agreed that everything after Dr. Edgemar's visit to Quaid on Mars was not working. Look, this isn't working. <laughs> Verhoeven wanted a significant change to indicate that Edgemar could be telling the truth and Quaid is actually having a mental breakdown on Earth. Goldman rewrote the script to make it possible for the film to be viewed as both reality and fantasy. He also made Hauser an ally to Cohagen, clearly defining Quaid and Hauser as separate identities. Goldman believed that making Hauser evil would better justify Quaid not returning to his original personality. It would also explain why Hauser becomes Quaid to conceal his intentions from the psychic mutants. Goldman made the Benny character a villain because he believed African-Americans were typically typecast as good characters and the, re the reveal would be surprising. It was good. It was good. Benny, uh, that whole bit yeah. was a nice twist. He's so, it's so funny because afterwards you realize just how greasy and gross he is. Yeah. <laughs> but he's, he seems like he's helping them. Yeah. The script also had to be revised to match Schwarzenegger's action hero public image, although Goldman tried to make it less comical than some of the actor's previous films. The meek clerk Quayle was renamed Quaid to avoid referencing then-Vice President Dan Quayle and became a muscle-bound construction worker while fight scenes were rewritten to include more feats of strength and less martial arts or running. It's all him bashing dudes' heads together and stuff so, and breaking necks. So much punching. Oh. And yeah, just like I look, he breaks three necks in like four seconds. Yeah. It's just like, okay. Second unit director and stunt coordinator Vic Armstrong, among other stunt people who had worked with Schwarzenegger on Conan the Barbarian in 1982 and Red Sonia in 1985, said that they knew what he could do physically without looking silly. 
Schwarzenegger also wanted more creative methods to dispatch Quaid's foes because he had been criticized for an over-reliance on guns to kill people in films like Commando. Well, they still had quite a few guns in this. They did. <laughs> a lot of random people getting shot. Oh, my God. <laughs> when he's on the the a escalator poor, poor and man. just grabs a poor... I'm going to work. Uh, honey, I'll see you tonight. I can't believe it's our anniversary. Seven years. The best years of my life. I'm just going to run to the mall and, and pick up some champagne for us. There's this big guy behind. Oh, my God. He must have been shot a thousand times. He, he just kept yes. whipping from side to side and he using this poor bullet sponge. And then he threw him down the escalator. No, no, no. He throws him down in front of him, and then everybody steps on him. There's No, shots he of... throws him behind him. He's stepping on the bad guys. But, no, it's no, the they guys. step on the guy that gets... All right, we'll watch that scene again. Oh, I did, because I was like, they stepped on him. Yeah. Insult they to injury. Care. I mean, it's, a, it's a part of the fact that no one in power cared about anybody else in this. Yeah. Mars was a lawless place, baby. It was. Well, actually, that, that all took place on Earth. Did it? Yes. <laughs> it was all before he went to Mars. That stuff was? Yeah. Oh, okay. They chased him down. It's when the she was arguing. They were in the thing, and she like, she's like... Sharon Stone does the whole, like, you can do all the kinky stuff with me oh, now. And okay. then they're in the back running up, and he chases him down. He lives above the subway, and then it's it's just random people. The best part, if you have a chance, listen to the commentary on the DVD that came out in, like, 2000. Because it's Paul Verhoeven and Arnold Schwarzenegger. And Schwarzenegger just repeating what's happening on screen. Ah, look. I'm running up the escalator. He watch used- this. Watch. I grab this guy, and I use him as a shield. Oh, that's funny, right? Literally. <laughs> okay, look. I'm wearing a green jacket. Okay? <laughs> so we got it. It's a little bean. It was, uh, so we had six ridiculous. of them. It's so funny. And it's so hard because Paul Verhoeven has a really thick accent, too. And it is really hard to understand them through most yeah. of it. Anyway, it's, it's one of my favorite commentaries of all time. It's ah. Uh, oh, I, couldn't, I could not breathe here. Because uh, it was Mars. I, I, I held my <laughs> breath. I was, it was method acting. They didn't actually use special effects. That was his eyes actually oh, popping I, out. I, little people know that I can bulge my eyes out to make them look like they're going to pop. It's like flexing. Yes, I have very, very uh, defined eye muscles. Look, <laughs> gross. gross. <laughs> so gross. Uh, after Goldman's first rewrite, he discussed it with Verhoeven, Schwarzenegger, Schusset, Vanya, and Kassar. It's like the. The Seven Dwarves, yeah, Verhoeven, Schwarzenegger, Shusit, Banyan, Kassar. It, it, it sounds like the, uh, oh, from uh, Running Man when they talk about the three guys that yeah. win. <laughs> it's like listing those guys, yeah. Schwarzenegger and Shusit believed the climax lacked emotion, which was an, an intentional choice by Verhoeven, who did not take the Martian rebel plot very seriously and pri- pri- prioritized, prioritized the intellectual aspects of the narrative. To appease Schwarzenegger, Goldman conceived of Cohagen shutting off the oxygen to the mutants in Venusville. Yeah, but nobody, I mean, they still were kind of an afterthought. I know, yeah. After, they did not seem very, like, like when they were finally like, hey, we got to go save everybody. They're just kind of like, oh, do 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 All right. <laughs> if we make it in time, it's like, okay. After nearly 16 years in development, seven directors, four co-writers, and 40 script drafts, Good Lord. Total Recall finally went into production. Verhoeven chose Michael Ironside to portray Cohagen's hench- henchman, Richter. Richter. <laughs> One of his first roles was as evil telepath Daryl Revok in Scanners in 1981, directed by David Cronenberg. Oh, he was so good. Oh, he was so good. So good. I love Michael Ironside. No, oh, he's fantastic. His breakthrough role was as cynical anti-hero Ham Tyler in the television miniseries V, The Final Battle in 83. Call me Ham. Ham Tyler. And it's following 19-episode series in 1984, which is one of my favorite things of all time. It's great. Ironside had previously auditioned for the lead in RoboCop, and Verhoeven had also offered him the role of antagonist Clarence Boddicker, which he turned down because he did not want to portray another psychopath character following his role in Extreme Prejudice in 1987. Well, he came back for... (laughs) Lo and behold, (laughs) Ironside said he considered Richter more of a sociopath who had personal ambitions and covets Cohagen's position. And I get that. Watching it again, like, I totally see the arc he was doing with Richter. I don't know. He seemed more of a toady who his motivations were revenge for Sharon Stone's death. Yeah. Well, yeah. But once the, the best part is that once they capture him and at the end, he's just like, all right. Hey, guys. It's like he, he becomes like Tony's just like, all right, we're good. Yeah, let's go party. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Except he loses his arms. Oh, my God. It's so messed up. Uh, uh, 
Uh, turning down a role in Robocop in a separate film had created the impression that Ironside was difficult to work with, and so he had to complete an audition before being offered the role in Total Recall. In it, he had an emotional breakdown leading him to lying on the floor crying as Verhoeven moved in for a close-up shot. Schwarzenegger believed Ironside's physical presence made him a credible threat to his portrayal of Quaid. Yeah, he's great. He's fantastic. During production, Schwarzenegger noticed that Ironside was constantly on the phone between takes. Yeah. Why are you always on the phone between takes? When Arnie broached the subject with him, he was told that he was phoning his sister and that she was currently suffering from cancer. Oh, my bad. <laughs> Arnold immediately brought Michael to his trailer, and they had an hour-long three-way conversation with Ironside's sister about what exercises she should do and what kind of food she should be eating. Ironside has never forgotten Schwarzenegger's kindness, and neither has his sister. Yeah, I'm, that's really cool. That's very nice of him. Yeah. He can, uh, Ironside can most recently be seen in the Hulu series The Dropout about Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos. Elizabeth Holmes. Have you ever heard her speak? No. She has the weirdest... Hey, this is Theranos. She kind of sounds a little bit like uh, our old pal, Colonel Wilma Daring. Colonel Wilma Daring? But yeah, and it's like a total put on voice, but she's like, she created this... There's a... It's There's some really good documentaries about her, and there's a good... uh, There's an interesting series uh, about her with uh, Amanda Seyfried, I think. Yeah, that's the dropout. Yeah. 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 So yeah, I think... uh, I'd like to check it out. It's a very interesting story. Yeah. Because you know, I mean, it's like a... It was such a huge right, scam. Right. Yeah, yeah. A you huge know, scam. Blood test yeah. thing that just I need to see the documentary and, and, and I'm curious about about the dropout with Amanda Seyfried, because I like Amanda Seyfried, but yeah. or, but uh but you know, I it's either gonna be one or the other and I'd rather watch the documentary. Yeah, I mean you're gonna yeah. get more out of it. The female leads, Rachel Tocotin and Sharon Stone, were chosen in part for their athleticism, which was needed for the physically demanding roles. Stone said that her physically formidable character resulted in the cast and crew treating her like she was one of the guys. And that Ironside was the one guy who never forgot I was a woman. When I was thrown down, he would help me up. Aw. Ironside's up. a nice guy. Yeah, <laughs> just get kidding. up. Get up, lady. You're wasting time. <laughs> help me up by just yelling at me. Get up! <laughs> uh. Sharon Stone started her career modeling in television commercials and print advertisements. Stone made her film debut as an extra on Woody Allen's dramedy Stardust Memories in 1980 and played her first speaking part in Wes Craven's horror film Deadly Blessing in 1981. She was also in Magnum P.I. Yeah. She playing had, twins. Yeah. Oh, she did? Twins. Oh, nice. Oh, it's a great episode. Nice. It's a great episode. It's psychologically strange. Ooh. ooh. It's cool. He's, That's cool. She's really good in it. Nice, nice. She's a great actor. She's great in this movie. Oh, yeah. I, she's, she, yeah. Just before Total Recall, she had previously appeared in Police Academy 4, Citizens on Patrol as a reporter in 1987, Cold Steel in 1987, starring Brad Davis, Jonathan Banks, and Adam Ant, Above the Law in 1988, starring Steven Seagal with a script from Ronald Shusett. I'm above the law. I can't, I can't believe there was a time in America where Steven Seagal was an action star. I love <laughs> Steven Seagal movies. I love them. They're my guilty pleasure. Oh, yeah. I uh, This friend of mine and I, uh, Allie, she and I used to watch those all the time. I oh, wanted yeah. to do like a, a little series where I played a character. Like, I just, he's so fascinating to me. His movies are so, <laughs> like, of a time. Yeah. yeah. And they're perfect. Yeah, and it's just like, and he's turned into such a weirdo. He's like a Russian. Oh, he's super weird. Yeah. He was always weird. He just my friend. He hit. He hit the time at the. He hit. He hit Hollywood at the right time. Yeah, and then he was out. Well, ponytail. Oh, slappy slap ponytail. That's what oh, I call him. Slappy slap. Uh, no kick. I can't raise my leg above my knee. <laughs> Sharon Stone also appeared in Action Jackson in 1988, starring Carl Weathers, Vanity, and Craig T. Nelson. That's a great underrated I movie, by the way. 100% agree. It is a really fun I movie. I love that movie. Schwarzenegger was so impressed by how much dedication Sharon Stone had in training for her character role that he even referred to her as the female Terminator. Ah, look at the female Terminator. Here she comes. <laughs> look at you. Have a cigar. <laughs> Hey, <laughs> she was inducted into the Stunt Woman Association as an honorary member. Nice. To coincide with the movie's release, Sharon Stone posed nude for Playboy magazine, showing off the buff body she developed in preparation for the movie. Stone pumped iron and learned Taekwondo. You know, Playboy doesn't have naked ladies anymore. They don't do the nudity at all? No, I don't think so. I yeah. think it's just like a whatever. I looked at a Playboy in a long time. It's so weird to think about times when, you know, celebrities would pose in Playboy as promotion that, for their project. This is the thing. That's the thing is that it's like, oh, like that was that was just another promotional yeah. tool. And she was like, hey, I'm willing to do it. Let's do it. Stone would make a huge splash working with Verhoeven on 1992's Basic Instinct. 
Yep. <laughs> she can most recently be seen in the film Beauty, released in 2022, now available on Netflix and on TV in Murderville, also on Netflix, and in three episodes of The Flight Attendant on HBO Max. Her episode of Murderville. Murderville's a really uh, funny show. It's Will Arnett plays this cop, and it's all improvised, and it's... they bring in somebody to be his New rookie partner. People that are not good at improvising. And they don't improv. know any of the story or yeah. anything going forward. But she was great. Yeah. She was really funny. Conan O'Brien was on it. And he was really he funny. Was, I watched his episode. It was fun. But it was uh, it was fun seeing Sharon Stone being playful and play they, along. You just have to play along. But yeah, she's she's great. I think she's, she's a game. She's actor. She's been around for a long time. And yeah. she's a survivor. And she's, oh, yeah. She's good. Uh, Rachel took... Tocotin uh, made her film debut as a dancer in the film King of the Gypsies in 1978, starring Eric Roberts in his film debut, Sterling Hayden, Shelley Winters, Susan Sarandon, Brooke Shields, Annette O'Toole, and Judd Hirsch. I've never heard of this movie before. Judd Hirsch. I've heard of Judd Hirsch. Yeah, he was in Taxi, and he was uh, Jeff Goldblum's dad. Well, I this is what I don't understand. I know all these actors, and I've never heard of this movie. Yeah, I think I've seen it. Uh, during this period, Tocotin received an on-screen credit as a production assistant on Brian De Palma's Dress to Kill in 1980. Her first big break came when working as a production assistant alongside her brother David in 1981. She was given a significant role as Isabella, Paul Newman's love interest in the movie Ford Apache, The Bronx. Yeah, she's a little young for Paul Newman. Yeah. <laughs> she appeared in Critical Condition in 1987, starring Richard Pryor. She can most recently be seen in the 2020 movie Super Intelligence. Huh. Michael Champion was cast as Helm, Richter's right-hand man. Champion started his career as a musician. He co-wrote four songs on Meatloaf's debut album Stoney and Meatloaf in 1971, as well as playing the harmonica on a track. Your favorite instrument. You want me to grab my harmonica? No. Play for you. Absolutely not. Uh, he made his feature film debut in 1979 with When a Stranger Calls. It's a great movie. Yeah. He made appearances in 10 in 1979, History of the World Part 1 in 1981, Beverly Hills Cop in 1984, and Pink Cadillac, starring Clint Eastwood in 1989. He went on to guest star on a ton of TV shows before passing away in June of 2021. Oh. Yeah. I lo- he's one of my favorite characters in this movie. Yeah, he's great. He's just so goofy. And, like, it's this thing, there! And then they fire, fire, fire. Yeah. There! It's like he can suddenly teleport 15 feet away. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, he's it's got so cool hair. He does. He's he's awesome. Verhoeven's daughters were responsible for casting Benny, picking Mel Johnson Jr.'s screen test for the from the available options. What's all with like, these daughters picking everybody? I just wasn't wonder, it was Craven's know. daughters that picked Johnny Depp. Yeah, yeah. Of course they did. Well, of course they did. He was beautiful. It's just weird. I mean, what was it about? I don't know. Him Mel and... Johnson Jr. I don't yeah. know. I don't know. Johnson Jr. got his start on Broadway with musicals On the 20th Century and Yubi in 1979. Nice. Yubi would be filmed as a TV special where he reprised his role. He would mostly stick to Broadway through the 80s. He recounted having just finished filming a horrible black exploitation film when he read the Total Recall script, and after seeing Benny described as a black jabster, he threw the script across the room. Yeah, don't blame him. People did not know how to <laughs> describe people in... No. With dignity back then. It's so bad. It's so bad. Nonetheless, he eventually read it through and decided to audition because he believed the character was more fully realized, saying, This guy is cold and calculating, and the story was intriguing. He continued to act on Broadway and most recently can be seen in episodes of Jessica Jones. Great. I'm glad he's still working. Yeah. yeah. He was really good. He's so good in this. When he was like, when, when that switch, when they get into that, you know, they're putting on their little suits. They're going to go out. And he closes the door and that switch where he's like, yeah, it's bad news, baby. Immediately. Yeah. He was so good. Oh, he's brilliant. He and was so Gross mutant arm. <laughs> Very weird mutant arm. Uh, Ronnie Cox had previously worked with Verhoeven on Robocop and traded on the actor's history of playing good natured characters to make his villainous turn more impactful. Oh, he was so good. Robocop was amazing. He was so good in Robocop. Well, he was just, I mean, he was so good in this, too. Yeah. Ryan Cox oh, no, totally. playing a villain. Like, he, my favorite role of his, I think, is probably Beverly Hills Cop. Yeah. The cop yeah. series is the, is As the, the police, chief. police chief. Yeah. But, uh, or was he the chief? I don't know. Yeah, or captain or something. Yeah, I, think I he mean, was he was. He, anyway, because uh, he's such a great character, and he believes, like, the thing about that is it's about, Cops and believing cops and like right. you know he, he didn't get caught up in the BS of like well I'm in wrong jurisdiction and yeah I don't yeah. believe you in this and that he's like he was such a good character and he plays it so well and this one too 
I just think he's having a ball. Oh yeah, playing the yeah. villain. You know, with oh, his slick yeah. back hair and it's just being so greasy and gross yeah. and just like you yep. just tell he's just dripping in it and loves it. As an actor, Cox made his debut in the 1972 film Deliverance. In one scene, he plays the instrumental dueling banjos on his guitar with a banjo playing Mountain Boy, played by child actor Billy Redden. It's such a great scene. Yeah, it is. Uh, he, was, he was hired for the role because he could play the guitar. It, that is such a good movie, too. Oh, great movie. Saw it way too young. Yes. Learned about... <laughs> Certain yes. things I probably shouldn't have known about it scared me. <laughs> it was just so... Uh, oh, reference, God. I think one of our old stepdad shows, Jim goes into this story quite detailed. Oh, my so God, please, yeah. please find that. Yeah, my stepdad. Yeah. Uh, let me watch a lot of movies uh, when I probably should. <laughs> it's a great story. It's a great story. Ooh. Cox appeared on Most People's Radars in 1984, appearing in Beverly Hills Cop. In 1989, he appeared as the president in Martian Goes Home, starring Randy Quaid. Yeah, Randy Quaid. I was waiting for you to... That's your favorite movie of all time. Martians Go Home. I don't remember that movie. Oh, really? It's bad. It's not good. Go home, Martians. It's not good. Go home. It was uh, was definitely Randy Quaid trying to capitalize on the vacation stuff, Uh, and it just did not work. Well, Randy Quaid made a career playing a bunch of weirdos and then just turned into the weirdest man in the world. (laughs) Stopped acting. Yeah, and it just like... He and his wife just do weird things now. Yeah. Sad. Yeah. Uh, Ronnie Cox in 1990 appeared in Loose Cannons, written by Richard Matheson, Richard Christian Matheson, and Bob Clark, who also directed the film. The film stars Gene Hackman, Nan Aykroyd, and Dom DeLuise. Yeah, it's a fun, it's a weird movie. I, I liked this movie a lot. I think it was just the right age when it came out. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Dan Aykroyd plays a, a guy with multiple personalities. Yeah. He's, he's good. Yeah. He's really good in it. And yeah. he, he has to. It's good. Yeah, it's very good. And Gene Hackman plays a straight man. He's great. Dom yeah. DeLuise is Dom just DeLuise nuts. Is always amazing. Yeah. <laughs> he also appeared in the awful 1990 film Captain America as the president when uh, the Marvel Entertainment Group was trying to hold the rights to Captain America. They made that movie, and it is really bad. Wow. Really bad. Describing his portrayal, Cox said that he did not employ method acting, but did try to understand how the character would feel and think and how he would react to situations, and that would determine his performance. In Captain America or in Total Recall? No, in in general. Oh, okay. Uh, I think he's just describing acting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just like, okay, that is literally acting. All right. Well, he's good at it. Oh, he is. He is. The character's hairstyle came about after Cox's hair was slicked back in order to make a face mold for special effects purposes. Cox knew it was the right look and convinced Verhoeven to reshoot two days of Cox's scenes with the new style. Look. Look at this. It's awesome. <laughs> look at my hair. It's so great. <laughs> we got to shoot those two days over. I don't know what his accent is, but... <laughs> <laughs> Paul Verhoeven? Yeah. I, want, I think he's Danish, if I remember right. I'm, I, don't okay. know how, I don't even know how to... Yeah. yeah well, I'm not going to attempt it. I'm not gonna, uh, I don't want to... Uh, no, no. Alienate our Danish fans. No, no. Or one fan in, in Daneland. Daneland? Yeah. I already did. Isolated him. Sorry. Uh, Cox can most recently be seen in Being the Ricardos, the film about Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz, and in Star Trek Prodigy, the animated TV series, doing voiceover. Cox is also an accomplished singer and songwriter, having released 11 albums, the most recent being the 2020 release Ronnie Cox, Live from the Kitchen Sink. Yeah, he just sat in his kitchen sink with a guitar. I believe he filmed this after lockdown, or he recorded after lockdown. sitting in his sink. Yeah. His wife, Mary, died in 2006, 50 years to the day after their first date. She just had enough of him. (laughs) Cox often talks about her during his music performances. Oh, that's sad. I can't imagine, you know, being with somebody for 50 years and then not having them. It would be like losing an appendage or something. Yeah, that would be a lot. And And it's been, what, 16 years since then? Like, that's a long time to be without, yeah. That's yeah. a lot. Marshall Bell was cast as George with the mutant leader Kuato sticking out of his belly. Yeah. Bell's movie debut was in the role as Ronsky in Alan Parker's drama Birdie in 1984. Nice. He appeared as Gordy's grieving father in the adventure drama Stand By Me in 1986 and as a hitman in Twins in 1988. Get out of his room. Wrong boy died. 
Jesus. He was very convincing and stand by me. He was great. When Marshall Bell auditioned for the role, the script did not explain the relationship between George and Coato, and he was confused as to why George had so few lines. Although voice actors were considered for Coato, Vorhoven decided to use Bell. Uh, I had no idea that was him. I always was convinced it was somebody else. It's because he says, it's just so off-putting because it's a little baby. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Quaid. <laughs> Look at me. Grab my greasy little hands, Quaid. Hold my hands. And I will show your future. <laughs> Fifteen puppeteers worked the character, but the makeup was essentially a chest plate worn by Bell. According to Paul Verhoeven, the makeup took six hours to build on Bell. Verhoeven said that special makeup effects designer Rob Botton had made the Quato puppet look so real that he was approached by two people on the street asking if Bell was a real freak or possibly a semi-born Siamese twin. Hey, hey, was that guy a real freak? I don't understand why he was wearing it on the street. No, I, I think... <laughs> People he came went to up to him. Go get a candy bar. Probably. I mean, they shot they shot all this in Mexico, so no, it's. But possible. I think they came up to him on the street after the movie came out. Probably. Oh, the, oh, I see what you're saying. You that know, that makes so much more sense. It, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, with him just like going <laughs> to the bodega. He's like, "Hey guys, I'm gonna go get the Snickers bar. I'll hey. be back." Was <laughs> it your Siamese twin? <laughs> uh, Roy Brocksmith was cast as Doctor Edgemar. He started his career acting on Broadway. Brocksmith made his acting debut in 1978 with The Squeeze, also known as The Ripoff, directed by Antonio Margaretti, starring Lee Van Cleef. Lee Van Cleef. Uh, he also appeared in King of the Gypsies in 1978. Nice. Another person in that movie that I know of that I have never seen. He appeared in Scrooged in 1988, Martians Go Home with Randy Quaid. Nice. <laughs> Tango and Cash in 1989. Tango and Cash. Oh, man, I cannot wait to cover that. Oh, yeah. Uh, he made a ton of guest appearances in TV shows. Uh, Roy Brocksmith is everywhere. He's oh, yeah. one of those, again, one of those actors that you're just like, you see him and you're like, oh, I don't know who that guy is. Verhoeven based the appearance and physicality of Brocksmith's Dr. Edgemar on the central scientist character portrayed by Paul Newman in Alfred Hitchcock's 1966 thriller Torn Curtain. Yeah. He wanted an actor who looked... Naive and strange and a bit weird. <laughs> Brocksmith is in my favorite scene in Total Recall, where he essentially lays out the entirety of the third act to Quaid. Oh, yeah. He says that if Quaid kills him... The walls of reality will come crashing down. Moments after Quaid shoots Edgemar, the walls of the apartment literally crash down. Yeah. He says that Quaid will believe himself the savior of the resistance, only to discover that he's in fact Cohagen's bosom buddy, which is exactly what happens. Yeah. And he says that he will have visions of an alien civilization, which Quaid experiences during the mind meld with Kuwato. Oh, yeah. If a viewer believes the whole film is a dream, then Edgemar's prediction that Quaid will end up being lobotomized is fulfilled in the fade to white, which ends the movie. Yeah, yeah, but he died with a good memory in his mind. I honestly, and we'll talk about this uh, a little bit later, but I honestly, after watching it again, I don't know. I, I can't decide if it was real or not. Uh... Unfortunately, Brock Smith passed at the age of 56 in 2001 from complications with diabetes. Yeah, that's sad. Which also means that in 2001, he was only in his 40s when he did this. <laughs> he seems to be much older in this movie. Well, he didn't take great care of himself, I don't think. No, no. Principal Photography began filming between April and May in 1989. Filmed almost entirely in sequence, rare in the movie industry. The production took place over 20 weeks. The initial budget for Total Recall was reported as $30 million, but the final budget is reported as being between 48 and $80 million. It's a big spread. Yeah, I'm pretty sure 80 is probably going to be, the high end is going to be better. Total Recall was filmed almost entirely on sets at Estudios Chirobusco in Mexico City, Mexico, where 43 casts and up to 500 crew members worked across 45 sets on 10 sound stages. That's a lot of sets. They really used a lot of that $80 million. Yeah, it did. It really it showed up on it screen. It is. It definitely. The Earth train station was filmed in the Mexico City metro, and many exterior Mars scenes took place in the Valley of Fire State Park in Overton, Nevada. Shusett and Goldman were present on set, providing additional rewrites were necessary. Goldman estimated that the script was changed less than 1%. After 40 drafts, that's good news. Verhoeven sometimes required up to 20 takes of scenes, but remained faithful to the script and discouraged improvisation. Wow. Even so, some scenes, such as Benny's death, lack sufficient detail, and in these cases, dialogue was mostly improvised. Yeah. Like him screaming, oh my god, what are you doing? Ouch! <laughs> Ouch, that hurts! I'm sorry, that's not in the script. We can't have that. You have to be stock still. I believed it, though. Let's keep it. <laughs> 
Although Verhoeven had been adamant he did not want a second unit director, having fired three of them on RoboCop. Control freak! Yeah. Vic Armstrong ended up filming 1,200 different setups in all of the fight scenes. Okay. Verhoeven was very happy with his work. Good. Armstrong's first scene was filming Schwarzenegger drilling cement. Filming was beset by injuries and illness. Yeah, there was a lot of... It was bad. (laughs) Almost everyone involved suffered from dust inhalation on set. We filmed on Mars. (laughs) Food poisoning and gastroenteritis from the local Mexican cuisine was also a problem, except for Schusett and Schwarzenegger, who had his food brought from the United States after a negative experience while filming Predator in Mexico. Well, he also has a very specific diet. Yeah. You know, it's like all turkey breasts and... Yeah. Potatoes and shit. <laughs> the illness compounded the difficulties. Lysia Naff had filming her scenes as the three-breasted prostitute. She said she felt like crying because even though the breasts were artificial, she felt exposed in front of the cast and crew. I get it. Yeah. Schwarzenegger cut his wrist while smashing a train window after an explosive designed to pre-detonate the glass failed. His injuries were patched up and concealed by his jacket. Mm. He also incurred other minor cuts and broken fingers. Gross. Yeah. Ironside cracked his sternum and separated two ribs after running into Michael Champion, who was holding an Uzi during the pursuit of Quaid and Molina in a Martian hotel. That's just bad. Bad stunt coordination? Well, yes, exactly. That's just not... That's just rushing stuff, because... That stuff shouldn't happen. No, no. Filming had to be paused while he recovered as Victor was involved in most of the remaining scenes. After three weeks, a producer asked that he return to filming, but they could not obtain insurance unless Iron, Ironside performed 50 push-ups. So weirdly arbitrary. Yeah. Uh, well, like, what if he couldn't do 50 push-ups to begin with? What if he just, you know? <laughs> I could only do 20. Uh, uh, yeah, I'm not good at the push-ups. Uh, despite the doctor's advice, he attempted the feat and re-injured himself. Of course he did. After 30 push-ups, the doctor said it was sufficient. That's enough. Stop crying. <laughs> <laughs> Ironside's first scene on his return involved him fighting Schwarzenegger on an elevator, but he struggled to lift his arm. The doctor had Oakland Raiders quarterback Jim Plunkett drop off a brace built for his own injury, which held Ironside's chest in a stable position. And both of his arms got ripped off. Well, I mean, eventually. Yeah, yeah that's a bad injury. Uh, Ironside filmed his scene over the remainder of the day, only being hit once accidentally by Schwarzenegger, who was cautious of his condition. Uh, Schwarzenegger did not want to hurt him, obviously. Well, yeah, good. Nice guy. <laughs> a separate fight between Stone and Tocotin were arranged was arranged to normally feature one of the actresses and one stunt person because padding cannot be concealed under their outfits. Verhoeven wanted the actresses to perform the fight stunts themselves, but Armstrong insisted on using a stunt person. Schwarzenegger was known for his pranks on the set, such as arranging styrofoam snowball fights and water pistol battles during dinners, as well as booking parties to reward the crew for the six-day working weeks and practical stunts. Here comes another one of Arnie's practical jokes. (sighs) Those are styrofoam snowballs again. All right. (laughs) Here they come. We're going to be here for another hour. (laughs) The score was orchestrated by Jerry Goldsmith. The producers intended to have him record the score in Munich because the pay for musicians there was lower, but the players were unfamiliar with Goldsmith's style, and the resulting score was disappointing. Instead, Goldsmith was given the funding necessary to record the score in London with the National Philharmonic Orchestra, who who were more fitting to Goldsmith's musical intentions with brass and string instruments combined with electronic sounds. The recording was put on hiatus for three months so Verhoeven could have time to edit the special effects, during which Goldsmith recorded the score for Gremlins 2, the new batch, before returning to finish his work on Total Recall. That's awesome. That's, I can just imagine. Yeah, I'm just going to do this other little project. It's all good. Goldsmith also performed the commercial jingles and elevator music heard in the film. Uh, so he was responsible for Recall, Recall, Recall. <laughs> the score is considered by many to be Goldsmith's best work. Okay. Has, the opening of it is very reminiscent of Terminator. Yeah, yeah. Like, it's the the way the music is just kind of jarring and, like... It's got that bump, bump, bump. Yeah, yeah. Initially scheduled for release on June 15th, Total Recall's post-production schedule was rushed to move the date forward two weeks to avoid competition, particularly, particularly from Dick Tracy due to its cast of popular stars. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's a great movie. Mm-hmm. It's a shame, because yeah, there are a lot of really great stars in that. And it was, oh, yeah. it was an interesting movie. It yes. just didn't quite do it. Yeah, interesting is the best word for it. It was a it was a interesting failure. Yeah. 
Editor Frank J. Yerosti worked overtime to complete Total Recall's 113-minute cut early. This meant there was no time to test screen the film, which Verhoeven and Goldman believed worked against the finished product, including its third act. It's funny. Most people don't like doing test screenings. They were still... I still don't think they were really convinced the third act was going to work, even after they fucking edited the whole thing. The film also had to be trimmed to remove violent content and gore, including a longer version of Benny's death to avoid an X rating, which would have restricted attendance to audience members over the age of 17. It ultimately received an R rating. Yeah? Yeah. In U.S. and Canada, Total Recall was released on June 1st, 1990 in 2060 theaters. It grossed $25.5 million and finished as the number one film of the weekend. It eventually went on to gross $119.4 million. This figure made it the second highest grossing film of the summer behind the surprise success of Ghost. Patrick Swayze. Oh, yeah. And the seventh highest grossing film of the year behind The Hunt for October, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Pretty Woman, Dances with Wolves, Ghost, and Home Alone. Really? Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, huh? Uh, yeah, it was the fifth highest. It, that movie made a lot of money. Interesting. It was ridiculous. But yes, which is weird because I don't think about like Dances with Wolves and Pretty Woman as being like huge box office burners. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, yeah, Dances with Wolves was juggernaut. That was just one of yeah. those things that everybody had to see. I, I think it's because I was a huge fan and of that I just movie. didn't care about the movie, so I just didn't pay attention to it. Kicking Bird. Kicking Bird. Kicking Bird. That's Mary whatever her name is like she was so bad no No. mary steamridge is a good actress um (laughs) i know who you're talking about yeah Yeah. i've only seen the movie once it's enough yeah it's enough times (laughs) he dances with wolves uh on its release total recall received mixed reviews from critics who generally praised the production values and schwarzenegger's performance but criticized the violent content Audience polls by CinemaScore reported moviegoers gave the film an average grade of a minus yeah it's a crowd pleaser yeah it was a super entertaining movie. I, yes, it was very entertaining. And there's there's enough weirdness in it and like questioning that it people will want to watch it again. Like it, watching it again, it's just basically a bunch of people running around and shooting at each other <laughs> in cool sets, not knowing who they are. Yeah, it's a lot of pretending to be and running and shooting. Yeah. Well, that's the funny thing is that a lot of those the quote unquote sets, like the subway thing, it looks like a set, but it's not. That's the actual Mexico City subway. Yeah. Like it's crazy that it's just that weird brutalist architecture. Like it's. Yeah. At the 63rd Academy Awards in 1991, Total Recall won the award for Best Visual Effects. They're a little rough these days, watching some of them, some of those shots. Yeah. The yeah. practical, like, the best effect in the thing is the is the Quato puppet. Yeah. Well, and, like, some of the, the Tim or whatever with the weird clam The makeup face stuff, yeah. Like, There's yeah. some good makeup stuff, yeah. Yeah, but like the arm, the, the Benny's arm was cool, and like I mean, there's some good stuff yeah, in it. Some stuff still works. The, the worst stuff in it is apparent from the very beginning when he goes and sits down and changes the t- she changes the TV to like the the outdoor scene. Yeah, the green screen. The stuff green is screen awful. is so bad. <laughs> they did not key them well. No, no, not at all. Uh, the film received further two nominations at the Academy Awards: Best Sound and Best Sound Effects Editing, which it did not win. A novelization of the film written by Piers Anthony and based on the script in Dick's original novel was released in 1990. It retains the original character name of Douglas Quayle. Mm -hmm. Uh, I find it very ironic that they had to novelize a movie that was based on a story. I still find it ridiculously idiotic they had to do that at all. Yeah. I mean, it's this just shows how much the movie changed from the original story. They couldn't promote it as like being, hey, this is the thing. But he retained the name. He did. I'm sure, in honor of Phil K. Dick. Uh, that same year, an action platformer video game, Total Recall, was released for the Commodore 64, Amstrad CPC, and Nintendo Entertainment System, and the Amiga and Atari ST computers. I don't remember it. I remember coming out. I don't think I ever played it. Total Recall's success led to development of a sequel. Goldman had optioned another of Dick's works, the 1956 novella The Minority Report, intending to direct it himself. Unable to make progress on that project, he and Shusett worked together on adapting The Minority Report into a Total Recall sequel in 93, depicting Quaid as the head of an organization that uses mutants with precognition abilities to predict and stop crimes before they happen. All right. How does he go from a construction worker to that? I don't, it doesn't make any sense. Uh, I took some night courses. It doesn't, it, and it's like what they're going to call it, Total Recall 2? I mean, like, what is, it? just the whole thing. Just Total seemed... Recalls. <laughs> <laughs> because the mutants recall things. He just writes it on the board with the dollar sign yes. for the S. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Money. <laughs> 
Carol Coe struggled to secure either funding or Schwarzenegger's interest to progress the project before its bankruptcy. The television rights to Total Recall were bought by DFL Entertainment for $1.2 million to develop a television series, Total Recall 2070, released in 1999. Don't remember that. Oh, I do. And it was bad. Really? <laughs> oh, it's not good. The show, set entirely on Earth, was not based on the film, and it was described as by author David Hughes as closer to a Blade Runner ad- adaptation. The whole thing was just a misstep. It was bad. Hmm. In the interim, Shusett and Goldman had removed the Total Recall elements from their script to develop it as a standalone film, The Minority Report, in 2002, which was directed by Steven Spielberg. Yeah. The film rights to Total Recall were bought by Dimension Films for $3.15 million at Carolco's bankruptcy auction. The studio began development of a sequel, intending to bring back the principal cast, but not Paul Verhoeven, to direct it again. What? Yeah. Development eventually ceased as a series of failed films had harmed Dimension financially, and the studio was unable to agree on a deal with Schwarzenegger. The rights to Total Recall were eventually purchased by Columbia Pictures, and a remake was announced in 2009. Released in 2012, the film, also called Total Recall, starred Colin Farrell, Brian Cranston, Kate Beckinsale, and Jessica Biel, who I totally forgot that Brian Cranston and Jessica Biel, Jessica Biel and Kate Beckinsale were in this movie. Yeah. Its plot follows elements of the 1990 film, but omits Mars entirely, taking place on a mostly uninhabitable Earth, which isn't even true. It's about them going, trying to, to drill. Did you see this? I did. I don't remember they try it at to, all. They're trying to drill, like, make a passageway between, like, where they're at in China. Yeah. Like, there's a whole, like, the whole thing is just bad. Poor Colin Farrell. It was, it was very not good and the audience agreed. Well that <laughs> was the no time money. in the early 2000s the remakes were garbage man. Oh yeah. And they were remaking really good films like uh Fright Night and yeah. Total Recall. There were yeah, there were a few that were okay. Like my the My Bloody Valentine remake I really liked. Well, okay. Um, like the the Crazies remake was good, but but you're right. I mean for the most part they were just – they were trying to replicate box office. Uh, I love success. the – no disrespect to the Crazies, but the Crazies wasn't Total Recall. Like, it didn't have no, that much no. – you know. And the Crazies remake was great. And these yeah. are horror, you know. Yes, Horror yes. remakes are yeah. inevitable. Well, because when did – this was also – I think it was kicked off by um, Ocean's Eleven because that – the original movie did not do terribly well, and it, the remake did. Yeah, so, like, it was actually was, a good movie. The original yeah. – it has a, a really cool cast, but the movie sucks. Yeah. It is yeah. super dumb and boring. The one thing is true in Hollywood, executives and people in marketing are lazy. Sure. And if they can piggyback on something that is already established and they don't have to do the work, they're going to do it. But it's just, you know, Total Recall is one of those movies that it's it's a crowd favorite. It's, yeah. It's always going to be around. It's one of Arnie's biggest movies. It's not the Terminator, but it's... You know, it's one of no, his bigger movies. It's, yeah, it's huge. People love this movie. And to remake it, I mean, that's this. It's the same thing like we talked about with Nightmare on Elm Street. They just kind of suck the fun out of it. Yeah. And you know, all the only thing I remember, the only thing I remember about the Total Recall remake is everybody wondering if there's going to be a three-breasted. Oh yeah. Mutant yeah. In it. Yeah. <laughs> Which, I, I don't remember if there was or wasn't. But. I don't think so. I don't remember. I don't. Remember. I don't think there were mutants in it. No, it's not. This is. The, it really felt like because I. I love Total Recall is one of my favorite sci-fi movies, and I love the movie so much. And when it when it was coming out, I was like, oh yeah, okay, like sure, like you know, I like Colin Farrell. I'm curious to see. It was like they just wrote a completely different script and then slapped Total Recall on it. Yeah, I think they wanted to make it more Minority Report yeah. than Total Recall. Yeah, yeah. And it, it just didn't work. Yeah, it just wasn't good. Did uh, not work. No, it just wasn't good. But, you know, the movie was fantastic. Watching it again, it's so good. There's so many great elements to it. It's such a cheese fest. Uh, <laughs> it is such a cheese fest. I mean, that's a compliment. It's just a cheesy, fun, dopey movie with ridiculous effects. <laughs> the end, you know, where they get shoved out into the Martian wasteland. And we watch Ronnie Cox's face <laughs> burst apart. And then Arnold and his lady friend are like, and they're awful, their faces and their it's, eyes are bursting. It looks like, you know those stress dolls? Yeah. You know, where you, and the eyes pop somebody, out? Yeah, somebody's squeezing. They made a stress doll of Arnold and Dakotan, and just somebody was like squeezing them. Squeeze, squeeze, squeeze. Oh, don't, don't squeeze too hard, because the eyes are going to pop. And then, you know, of course, Ronnie Cox gets his whole face explodes. I am 100% sure that they actually... 
shot his face exploding, but they had to cut it. Yeah. And, and it was going to be too gross. It was gross. But then... It was still gross. So then the atmosphere gets created in two seconds, which is pretty miraculous. Uh, <laughs> A lot of oxygen flying yeah, in the air. Um, <laughs> and then they're fine. Like... Their eyes yeah. aren't even red. No, there are, no after no, effects. Like, you know, no. a, like a little blood trickling because their whole faces were, were about to explode. Ex- yeah. yeah. That, no, they should have been like bleeding blood and or, or sweating blood. And stuff. But, I mean, if you – if this is like all in his mind, then, then everything's forgiven because it doesn't matter. Uh, little known fact, there actually was no special effects used in that scene with Tocotin and Arnie. They actually just had PAs come in and push down on them to have their faces expand. Uh, like the stress dolls. They were like, this is going to be much cheaper. Uh, you're going to push my push, eyeballs. Push harder. Push harder. Don't be afraid. <laughs> I have very strong eye muscles. Uh, so uh, in in the theme of our month of who's Zoom and who, uh, I honestly don't know if – it actually happened or not because yeah. this time watching it and it always bugged me before, but this time I was really stuck on the fact that when he went to, to recall and asked for his perfect woman, a picture of Rachel to shows up yeah. as like the generic, here's your generic person. You're going to wine and dine while you're a secret agent. And yet there she is on Mars. So did it happen or not? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Why don't you know, man? <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, I think it did happen because, you know, that's Arnold. I, I, I mean, I agree. I, I, I want to, 99% of me believes that, yes, it was, it was a real, you know, real story that he went there and that all happened. Well, the happened. fact that they were going to make a sequel with his character means that it happened because he, I, if, yes. if it didn't happen, then he had a psychotic break and died on the machine. Yeah. Or at least yeah. went insane. Right, right. That should be the sequel. It's just him in a loony bin just screaming about uh, how he's a secret well, agent. Squato. <laughs> uh, man, I love this movie so much. There's so many great and it's and some of the the special effects and stuff do not hold up, but it's it is the epitome. It's the ultimate eighties movie. Yeah. It came out in nineteen ninety. Well that's it the is thing. So good. I mean, we've talked about it. Movies that are at the beginning of a decade are of the last decade you yeah, know? Course, because they were made. Course. I mean, it yeah. was technically made in the eighties. Yeah. So yeah. it's still an eighties movie, but it's got that bombastic over the top action and tons of guns and tons of shooting. Oh, so many. Those guns are so weird. Yeah. I don't know. I didn't, I didn't read any research on the guns, but they all just are so weird. I well, don't understand. They just had to make them more futuristic. I guess. Um, but yeah, I mean, everybody's good in it, and everybody seems to be having fun. Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a fun movie. It's just a fun movie to sit down, hang out with friends, and just I the, my favorite thing about it. And granted, I again, I think it came out at a time I was like twelve when it came out, and I think it came out at a time when I was really into sci-fi. And and to me, it was like reading a '50s sci-fi short story of yeah. like, oh yeah, like this is what happens, and like. It has a great twist ending and, like, the whole alien thing and everything. It, like, it's it's just such a fun movie. It covers a lot of ground in a short amount of time. Yeah. And it just keeps moving. Everybody's running. It's just it, – they could have called it Running Man 2 because <laughs> everybody's just running, running, running. Oh, it's so good. Yeah, it's a fun movie. Uh, skip the remake. Yeah. Uh, but this and, is – Yeah. This, pretty much everything after this just skip. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But definitely watch it. If you haven't seen it. Check it out. And if you haven't seen it in a while, check it out again. Because I hadn't seen it in, I don't know, probably 15 or 20 years. Nice. And it was really fun to revisit it. And it just reminded me of just how delightful it was to watch Arnold movies back in the 80s and 90s at the top of his game. You know, whether it was this or Twins or... Running Man. Or Running Man Uh, or even Commando. I mean, all of his movies are fun. And he's a fun guy to watch. Predator. Oh, Red Heat, all of them. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're some are not as good as others. But... No, but he's always game, and he's always in it to yeah. win it. You know, he is. <laughs> he is. He is. And it's it's cool to see him still working, and it's cool to see him still, you know, coming out. And he yeah. still looks great for being in his seventies. And oh, I'm know. so happy that he's back in acting again. Like it's, I missed him. Yeah. Well, we'll be back next week. Uh, we got our final. Uh, who's, My favorite. Who's Zoom and Who movie? Yeah, uh, the thing. thing. Oh, baby, that is just, it is a perfect 
effing movie. I am so excited to watch it again. I'm so excited to talk about it. It is such a good movie. Oh, totally recall. Watch it. I don't know. because <laughs> 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 we Great. We could do I can't even do it now. No. I'm too caught up in Arnold. Uh, yeah, no, don't lose Arnie. We now return you to your regularly scheduled programming, Family Ties, already in progress.